Hello and welcome to another episode of Fraternity. I'm your host, Sean. And I'm Danny. And we're here to bring you another deep dive into the world of horror with fresh perspectives and fond memories. And new memories made. You're exactly right. Today we're going to be covering a movie called The Last House on the Left. As far as I know, this is a first time viewing for you, correct? Yep, first time viewing. I've heard of this movie a lot, you know, maybe through you, or I think it's I think it's generally well regarded in the horror community, right? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely a bona fide classic up there with all the rest of them. And before we get into the movie, though, again, let's just briefly mention we are a horror movie podcast dedicating to celebrating what is on the screen. So I, being the elder brother here, am going to bring some fond memories I have, which there are a few I have of this film. And as we deep dive into the movie itself, I'm sure we'll get to hear your wonderful fresh perspectives and combine the two for a joyous ride into a dark and gritty Wes Craven picture. You know, me and Sean, we just love to talk about what's on the screen and what was shot and present the story in front of you and tell and tell you our perspective. And yeah, let's have some fun. Yeah, one of the things we were discussing is with genre films, when DVDs started coming out, you really started to get film school in a box because people were so interested in behind the scenes things. Now we're in the era of Blu-ray. It's even better today. You can watch these movies with audio commentaries, watch wealths of supplements, making ofs, interviews with everybody in front of the camera and behind the camera. If you want behind the scenes information on a movie like Last House on the Left, it's available to you straight from the horse's mouth. And we really don't feel there's too much we can add in that regard. We are more a celebration by the fans for the fans. This is a breakdown of after watching a movie. It's a movie discussion. If you want to learn about the behind the scenes stuff, then you can go on Wikipedia and you can, you know, buy the Blu-ray and you can see that stuff for yourself. And I don't see us adding anything to that conversation that you can't already find by yourself. Our goal is to just give old perspective and new perspectives on all these movies. And we just want to be entertaining and make it seem like a discussion. We want you to feel like you're right here with us. Yeah, we've all just left the theater. We've all just experienced The Last House on the Left. So let me get into uh, my first experience with The Last House on the Left with you, Danny. So before you were born, I was obviously a single child. And I was like an eight-year-old super horror nerd. Around that age for me, this was the era of film. This was the era of mom and pop video stores. Anywhere you went, you could find a movie. If you went to a grocery store with your mom, there was a rental chain in that grocery store. And the movies that caught my imagination around that age were the American slasher, ranging from Halloween to Friday the 13th to A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know... Our parents are very encouraging and very supportive when you have an interest. And so I think our mother always more liked like the Wes Craven style of A Nightmare on Elm Street because it was more fantasy. It wasn't just like the killer stalking the teens in the woods. You know, it wasn't just murder for murder's sake. So she gravitated towards that. 
And, you know, being the incorrigible, supportive mom that she was, one day she went out and she rented me Wes Craven's last house on the left and the hills have eyes. Now, I was only eight years old when I first put this movie in the VCR in the living room. And I old not to get too ahead of ourselves here, but I, I remember getting to the point where Phyllis is starting to get attacked in the little dingy New York CD hotel they're at. And mom walked in and was like, whoa, whoa, you know, like maybe we better put a stop to this one because I didn't really know what this was. And I, I know you like Wes Craven. I know you like Freddy, but I don't think this is like the movie for you. Now, I, I wasn't objectionable to it. You know, I think I was already sort of like, well, this is pretty gritty shit here, you know? And that brings me to another thing I wanted to discuss, though, is like, even when I was a kid, I've always been a person who knows like a movie is fake. Like, I never fell for movie magic. There was always this fascination for me with like the act of making art. You have credits. You know there's directors, you know there's writers, you know there's actors, all the people behind the scenes. And especially when it comes to like horror and fantasy, I think I was always in, enthralled by the idea of people getting together and doing things like this. Like, you know, someone wrote this, someone had to make this, people, people had to agree to be in front of the camera performing these acts, whether they were Krug and company or the poor victims. You know, and so no matter how much you want to shut your brain off and enjoy a film, like I've always been too aware of the behind the curtain aspect, which oddly enough, The Last House on the Left can show that you can still push boundaries even when people know it's art for art's sake or fake. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. You know, it comes a point where stuff, you know, really reaches you in an uncomfortable way, you know, and makes you feel something. And that's really when you forget you're watching a film and kind of sucked into that world, which I think this film accomplishes. Yeah, like it definitely pushes boundaries and creates a hostile and terrifying environment. Very scary situations, very real. You know, and like I said, I'm eight years old and I made it about 20 minutes into the film. I'd say nothing really happened up to the point where like I had to shut it down. but. It would be another five to seven years before I would encounter this movie again. And it wasn't until I was a teenager and I came across it like in a Walmart, like on a kiosk for like Halloween movies. And I was like, well, there's Last House on the Left. You know, that movie's eluded me for so long. Maybe now I can check it out. And oddly enough, it became one of my favorite movies when I was a teenager. Like, I've always felt a real strong connection to it. It has just incredible representations of wickedness and evil and it's fitted through this lens of reality it like has this 1970s shattering of the american dream the broken home the loss of innocence on every side you know it's covered by every possible angle it's just a brilliant piece of work and i would become obsessed with it for a while and funny enough a little last anecdotal story before we get into the movie proper when I started collecting VHS, like hardcore, I always wanted an original home video release of Last House on the Left. And back in the day, there was still like a few mom and pop video stores surviving. And I remember finding it and being like, okay, this store is not long for this world. This is the Orion release. 
the first home video release of Last House on the Left. I need this in my collection. So I rented it under false pretenses of ever returning it <laughs> and took it home and put it on my mantle as a prized possession. And it wouldn't be but months later where this video chain that will remain unnamed started sending me threatening letters of litigation telling me they're going to take me to court unless I return their property. So, you know, just to shine a light on how obsessed, how impressed I was in this movie, I stole it <laughs> from a video rental chain and was forced under threat of court order to one day return it. And now here we sit with fascinating Blu-rays by Arrow Video, DVDs. This movie's been released more times than anyone can count. And it's just a brilliant piece of work. And I can't wait to get into it and hear what you think about it. Yeah, you're really showing your dedication, man. With <laughs> just no intent on returning that video. <laughs> None at all. I was like, I finally got it. It's mine. You know, because when I collected those old VHSs like that, the thing I loved was you wanted to find those original home video releases. Like it was Orion. I even remember the box art made no sense in relationship to the movie. You know, it had like a picture of like some house in the background with lightning crashing and <laughs> a little artist rendering of a, a, a dead girl in the palm of a hand. And it makes no sense, but I knew, I was like, this is the first home video release of Last House on the Left, and I have to have it. And unfortunately, they had other plans, and I didn't get to keep it, but like we said earlier, now there's brilliant film schools in a box of Last House on the Left you can get that collect every single piece of information you could ever want. So, without further ado, let us remind ourselves that this is indeed only a movie and take a deep dive into The Last House on the Left. The movie opens and we see a mailman delivering mail with a cute little dog and he's delivering mail to Mary, our main character in this story. And Mary is just, she's super popular. She's the popular girl, everyone's sending her mail. She's kind of coming into her own as a person. You know, she's hitting those very formidable teenage years in her life. Yeah, I liked how the mailman threw in his little, uh, she is about the finest piece I've ever seen, which to me was a nice bit of world building of not expressing the inherent evil that's coming, but just, it's not a naive world that's presented to us. Yeah, these thoughts permeate through everyone's head probably all the time, you know, the truth that no one wants to admit. Yeah, we also get the obligatory 1970s, this is based on a true story kind of crawl, just to make it more real. <laughs> People in the 70s really got tricked, huh? They were just, they just accepted it. I guess this is real. <laughs> yeah, then we get our uh, title screen, Last House on the Left. And for 1972, I don't know how much of a rule this was yet, but we already break the first rule of kind of exposing marry our main character which i thought was an interesting uh, artistic choice you know just kind of showing that vulnerability i mean the whole movie is kind of built around like mary being in, in kind of coming into her own as a woman and the world kind of bringing her down yeah we get to meet her parents she's got a uh, the nice kind of hippie parents who are 
caring and loving, but not like overly protective of her. Just yeah, they're not protective. They're letting her go out, see this band called Bloodlust. You know, they're curious and they're cautious, but they understand that Mary is, you know, a woman of her own and is smart and they trust her, which is a big thing too. And they let her make her own decisions. No bra, Danny. Yeah. Back when her mom was wearing bras, her her tits looked like torpedoes and were sticking out. Tits. What's this tits business? <laughs> I did like that. You know, we get the little barracks quip, so we know the father has had some kind of military experience. Just a little some more character building yeah i like this dialogue between her and her parents it's nice it's it's good at setting the tone and i think this movie really you know there's this jovial music kind of playing but it's a little bit eerie if you listen to the lyrics this movie is ready to kind of break your expectations yeah it almost flat out lies you know because as we're gonna find out the road does not lead to nowhere the castle will not be the same things are gonna hit the fan here and you know Soon after the the little parental scene with uh, Mary and her parents, we get to in- introduce to Phyllis. And it's another scene that I just love because it is this like 70s coming of age. Like these are strong, independent women. I don't want to say they're like, they're not doe eyed. You know, they're not innocent. They're out in the woods drinking. They're going to score some grass later. They're going to see this band Bloodlust. They're not prude or bashful. At worst, they're maybe a little naive to the dangers that are lurking out there. They perfectly kind of portray, you know, the average teenager. They're not super bad, but they're not super good. You know, it's, it's this very kind of moral gray area. Yeah, I thought it was good. It's a good introduction. You know, it's, it's easing you in. We also get a nice setup where the dad gives Mary her peace necklace, which will become quite an important piece of jewelry in the story proper. That'll definitely pay off later. Yeah, so we go through the nature trek with the two girls, and eventually they're going to start heading into town. And that's when we get what I thought was kind of a ham-fisted introduction to who we will learn is the gang. Yeah, immediately, you know, these guys are up to no good. Yeah, they really spared no expense in making them just sound utterly depraved. You know, we've got in the radio broadcast, we know people have died in this this breakout. We know Krug has killed a priest and two nuns in a triple slaying, which is utterly ridiculous. Has his own son hopped up on heroin to keep control of him. Armed and extremely dangerous. Pals around with Weasel, the child molester and assaulter. And then he pops little children's balloons with cigars. I mean, can you make this guy any more of a vaudevillian piece of shit? Yeah, to top it all off, not even the children are safe. That's one thing I wanted to bring up to you, too, is we get this dialogue about how bad these people are, but we don't get too much deeper into it, you know, like. Clearly, they're sociopaths. You know, Krug is a sociopath. He's a masochist. You have Sadie, who I don't want to sound like sexist, but you would think out of all of them, she would know better. But she seems like almost the liberated woman pushed to the other extreme. Like, who knows what got her in her position? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. She says, like, I want more women around here. 
you know, and she tells, she's like, I'm nobody's woman. You know, she's kind of hypocritical. We'll see later doing horrible things to uh, Phyllis and Mary. Yeah, then you have Weasel who, you know, it's funny because you're never quite sure how much his heart is even into it. He just seems to be a sick degenerate, you know, like. Yeah, he seems to, uh, he's afraid of getting caught and he wants things to go smoothly, but Krug really can't help himself. He's kind of the one that gets them in this whole mess. Whereas I think Weasel just wants to get a, have a clean getaway. Yeah. And then you have Junior, who, for all intents and purposes, is a victim himself. I would bunch him up with Mary and uh, Phyllis as another youth that is kind of lost in this film. His innocence is lost, as are Mary and Phyllis's, as we'll see. Yeah. And it's, it's almost sad that you know, the girls become victims of circumstance almost to his idiocy in reading too much into Sadie saying, you know, I want more female representation here. And then he's like, oh, here's these girls looking for some grass. And girls, look, if it's an ounce of Colombian for $20, you'll walk away. You know, one thing I noticed too in this, when we are introduced to the gang in the seedy apartment is just how claustrophobic this movie can be. Everything just feels so stacked on top of each other. I mean, there's a lot of close-up shots. It's dirty and grungy. Yeah, you're right. It totally just... The whole mood of the movie is very claustrophobic, and you're in situations you don't want to be in. Like, you just feel... Like, off the bat, you feel gross for, like, being... Like, seeing Krug and his gang just, like, interact with each other. Yeah, so we've met the girls, and now we're meeting the gang. And we do kind of spend... A lot of time humanizing the gang. It's funny, you know, they've clearly just done this prison break and they're already volatile towards each other. You know, Krug is jumping on Sadie and Weasel sees that as his chance to get in the action too. And they're like, Krug tells him, you know, shut up and get away from my woman. Weasel's like, your woman, our woman, you know. There's no rhyme or reason to the madness of these fools. And then you just have the two girls going out to the concert but then deciding to try to find some weed and just becoming victims of total circumstance here. There's no broad context. We have our victims, we have our perpetrators, and we're going to have some crimes. I wanted to bring up, I like when they get ice cream right before they end up asking a junior for weed, because that's literally their last taste of innocence is an ice cream cone. I thought that was a, a nice touch. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. That's another thing that I want to talk about, too, is in this movie, there's no magical killer. There's no killer in a mask. There's no inciting incident. There's no reason for Mary and Phyllis and Krug and company to really meet. It's just bad things happening to good people. And then once the girls do enter the apartment, we get nice little cross cuts with the parents being none the wiser and getting ready for Mary's birthday. Very sad to watch, especially on a rewatch when you know what's coming and you just feel horrible for them putting all this effort and the mom's baking the cake and, oh, it's, it's crooked. Oh, it looks fine, honey. It, re- it really beats you down and kind of puts you in this situation like uh, you're hoping for the best. And this movie really, you know, puts a lot of hope in you and it does its best to shoot down every hope that it gives you. So the gang has some equal representation and they quickly attack Phyllis. And we're left to watch Mary in total shock and bewilderment 
at what's happening. Just the darkness your parents have warned you about has just become a reality. This is not a bloodlust concert. This is not a poor innocent chicken getting killed. This is your life is now in danger. Yeah, it all comes crashing into their faces. The reality and the, the harshness of life. And I was just going to say, there's nothing they can do about it. They just have to go along with it. Yeah, and this is the point when eight-year-old me shut off the movie, or was told to shut the movie off, rather, when Phyllis was punched and dropped. And, you know, it's funny, one thing I wanted to discuss, too, was, like, the older I get, I feel like the more uncomfortable these scenes become. Oh, yeah. I think it's common as a like a teenager like i could totally see why this would be your favorite film or one of your favorite films and just because it pushes those boundaries and i think as a kid you're looking for that you're actively looking like for something that breaks the rules and makes you feel uncomfortable and like you want to like say like yeah that's my favorite movie like you should totally dig it not to say you feel a sense of su- uh, superiority you know liking a movie like that but i'm sure it you know appreciating it feels cool and I know people too, like, you know, their favorite movie as a teen was like A Clockwork Orange or something, like something totally violent that nowadays, like, yeah, I think as you grow older and have more empathy, you totally, like, you watch things differently. Yeah, there, there's definitely something to be said for shock value and the appreciation of, like, even Mary and Phyllis are going out to see Bloodlust, you know, and it's like when you're young you can get off on that kind of thing a little more than like you said, like once you're older, you're more empathetic. Like the scenes with the parents connect more, you know, like this is a nightmare. Right. Yeah. You think about, you know, if your child or sibling, younger sibling was in that situation, how would you feel with life experience and, and growing older? You, yeah, you go through different stages in your life and you understand things you didn't before. So, after this first little uh, attack, we're going road tripping. And again, we spend an uncomfortable amount of time humanizing this gang. The, the scene when the next day after they, kid, they kidnap uh, Mary and Phyllis, it's like playing this upbeat song. It's almost like, yeah, like, let's get ready for a road trip, you know? Again, it's like tricking your brain. You're like, what am I watching here? You know, this isn't supposed to be fun and while they're putting these two girls into the into the back of their trunk. But it's almost played for laughs. Yeah, the folksy uh, song. You have uh, Krug and Sadie having sex in the back seat while Weasel just rambles incoherently about sex crimes of the century. And as luck would have it, the vehicle breaks down just across the street from Mary's house. Yeah, what are the odds on that? Uh, one would hope not very good. (laughs) Either way, here we are. And, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about about this gang, too, is sometimes I feel like they're just not that well defined. They're almost like animals in the sense of they just do what they do. But at the same time, Phyllis bites Krug, which kind of sets everything into motion. And then I also realized, okay, well... They're running from the law, and now their car is broken down. So clearly we can't go much further with these two girls anyway. Yeah, something's gotta be done. But yeah, like, they're putting themselves in this situation where they're gonna have to obviously take action now. 
and yeah it wasn't planned it, it just happened and yeah you're totally right they're just like animals they're just doing what their instincts tell them to do you know no rhyme or reason why they got into the themselves into the situation but now that they're in this situation they're gonna do what they need to be what needs to be done you know no questions asked it's automatic for them right it's it's almost thoughtless like they're creatures of sick habit so we're about to take our poor girls into the woods for some humiliation torture and rape but before we get there there's there is a point of contention that is very divisive and that is the bumbling cops one thing i've heard throughout the history of enjoying this movie is you either hate these cops or they don't really affect the movie too much. So I was wondering what your opinion on the cops is. Look, they're there for a reason. They serve a purpose. Like I said, they're that bit of hope where you're like, man, these, I hope these guys can get through it and figure this out and save Mary and Phyllis. But each time we cut back to them, they just show their ineptitude and uselessness. And I will agree, it gets a little tiring. Like, I don't need the chicken truck scene. <laughs> you know, I think... Especially where it's placed in the film, I think it breaks the tension a little bit. Yeah, there may be one too many cuts to them at a certain point, for sure. But they're there to, you know, put you a little bit at ease and give you a little bit of hope. Like, maybe, you know, maybe they'll get out of this. Hope, Hopefully, I am hoping so. Yeah, you know, a lot of people complain about the cops as being, like, misplaced and misguided comic relief, which, like you said, with the chicken Ada and the chickens, and, like, there's definitely some of that. But I think you can't underestimate their representation of small-town innocence, because where Mary lives isn't the big city. We are off in the, in the woods, you know, in a small community. And these cops aren't expecting this. You know, this is not the worries of a small town police force, especially in this day and age that this movie takes place in. Yeah. I mean, you also got to think, like, did Wes Craven, what was his point adding these cops? You know, was he trying to say something about the police force at the time or, you know, I don't know. But, you know, it's something to think about. And I think it's there for a reason. Cool. So you don't completely object to the bumbling cops? No, uh, they're annoying. I'm not saying I like them, but they're there for a reason, for sure. And I think without without the cops, like this movie would be even more dreadful than it already is. Yeah, I think you definitely need some reprieve at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, as unimportant as the cops are, they need to be there. Because if it was just nonstop horrible things happening to these girls, and it would be, it would just be too much, I think. Yeah. So we are back in the woods with the girls now. We're at a centerpiece of the movie where this movie is a very artistic film, but there is no poetry here. This is just sex crimes like they discussed in the car ride. Everything at this point is designed to push extreme uncomfortability from pissing your pants to cutting your friend. If you don't do it, I say, you know, we really start to witness like the shattering of the innocence of these poor girls. Yeah, it's at this point, if you didn't think the horrible things were going to happen, you definitely see that they're going to happen, and this movie is not going to treat these girls with any respect. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but as important as these scenes are, it's just already alluding to like the importance of the third act that we're going to have here. You know, we've established our victims, we've established our perpetrators, but 
so far the whole time i feel like our true characters are just off of the peripheral you know the true people whose lives are about to be altered are the collingwood parents and this movie is a full frontal assault on the fears of the parents as well as the children because you know all parents had these fears for their kids no parent wants this for their kids and we were all kids at one point ourselves and it's easy to take what your parents say like with a grain of salt and not worry you know you're more lackadaisical when you're young but you always do heed parental warnings and now mary and phyllis are experiencing the worst case scenario yeah this movie is almost kind of made for that parental fear because yeah it's definitely one of the biggest parts of the movie is that fear of not knowing where your child is and unfortunately finding out later that your child has uh, been raped and murdered so krug is gonna go find some a machete for some uh firewood he puts it <laughs> yeah he wants to start a fire a campfire you know you're in the woods it's what you do we finally get you know the girls bravely go through their ordeal but phyllis is starting to put it together she's like unless we make a move we're not getting out of this situation alive so she decides to make a move yeah and when you're staring at death in the face like you really got to try anything and she makes a run for it and she tells mary like i'm gonna do it and you try to get i'm gonna distract them you try and get help so we go through our phyllis chase through the woods mary starts working over uh junior who she dubs a willow she gives him the necklace the peace necklace and i also liked how you know she kind of coaxes him with the fix she's like look i can get you a fix and that rings his bell you know junior is just so far gone you know the only thing he's thinking about is when his next hit unfortunately he's not necessarily an evil person but he's just like completely sunken into his his addiction unfortunately yeah, a complete victim of circumstance, which, you know, you said he's so far gone, which I think is funny because Mary tells him, I live right there. I live across the street. And he still can't put that information together for later on when these killers are going to make their biggest mistake. He can't see the bigger picture later. So eventually here, Phyllis is making her valiant effort, but she gets cut off just feet from the road. Yeah, it, it really does seem like she's going to get away for a minute. And the movie gives you a false sense of security. But, you know, this is last house on the left. And that cannot happen in this movie. It's also kind of funny that it does end up being Weasel perpetrating the first true act of violence with stabbing her in the back. How come? Why would you say? Well, just because up to this point, Krug has really been directing traffic. and. For Weasel to be the one who's like, I'm going to kill this girl now because she's done me dirty. It, cause he seems like such a tag along until this point where we do see like he is completely irredeemable also. I mean, he's in sandals for crying out loud. <laughs> no, I think that might might be his worst crime. Those uh, sandals with the suit. But yeah, he definitely he's he's pissed off that she's led him on this tiring trek you know through the forest and you know she's gonna pay for it yeah they really do a number on her too even sadie gets in on multiple stab wounds and 
dismemberment earlier like through with the them hurting phyllis and earlier too with the sex crimes going on it's almost like sadie was the one who was enjoying it the most you know she's totally depraved in that way yeah and again i try not to sound sexist you know but it's like she does seem like the one who should know better but it's almost like stockholm syndrome like she's just she's just with it yeah she wants to think she could be better if she wanted to but she just chooses not to her instincts have taken her over as well this whole group is just you know completely animalistic and ruled by instinct phyllis's body is still warm and they run into junior and mary and it's mary's turn now yeah every everyone now realizes what has to be done unfortunately for mary as as terrible as the murder of phyllis is you know there's just something so dirty about rape you know when krug rapes this 17 year old girl saying oh you're gonna get yours now and he's he's carved his name into her neck and just i feel like the depravity of the situation with the rape of mary almost shines a light on the gang and break them more than mary breaks yeah i think the moment after the rape and they're all just kind of sitting there in silence and Mary is saying a prayer, and then she just starts to wander off. And the gang, yeah, they're kind of just like, I don't know if I want to say necessarily they're disgusted with themselves, but I think they're definitely reflecting on maybe what led them to this point in their lives. Yeah, Mary resigns herself to her fate. She's accepted it, 100%. And at the same time, like, again, a brilliant folk song with... There's a line of dialogue in the song where it says, you know, and now you're all alone. And you know it's talking about Mary, but you can see it on Krug's face. Yeah, I mean, there's no loyalty here. No honor among thieves. It's sad. It's sad for both parties. Not to, you know, humanize Krug or his gang, but like I said, you can totally see it on their face. I think the movie is trying to make a point there. These are all humans, and all humans end up where they are through a series of choices. Yeah, I mean, it just... What they do to Mary says so much more about them than anything. You know, it's actually... It's a terrible thing for her, but again, she doesn't break. Like, she is broken, but she doesn't break. And she just walks out into that lake knowing that I'm not long for this world. They've taken what they think they could take from me. But I'm going to stand here with my head up high and let these people who are victims themselves for whatever reason do what they think they need to do. I just want to say, like, both Phyllis's death and the rape and murder of Mary are in no way enjoyable. This movie does not let you enjoy what happens to these girls. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a snuff film up to this point, right? <laughs> it is admirable that admirable that it doesn't glorify the violence but it doesn't shy away from it either like you said this is just a harsh reality of our world presented to you thankfully in a fictional film but the things that happen here have happened in real life and much worse has happened than this it's just a very cruel reminder of the world that you're living in i don't want to sell any of what we've already seen short you know we're about 45 minutes into this movie at this point and 
I feel like the movie actually starts now. This is when we start to get into the backbone of this film. You know, one of the taglines of this movie is it rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Now, what exactly are we referring to here? What have we just watched? You know, like we just said, we've basically just watched kind of a snuff film. We've seen the shattering of innocence of these two girls basically in their own backyard. We've seen the sickest, most wicked side of humanity. The gang is so irredeemable, they act unabashed and unafraid. These people have a consequences-be-damned attitude this whole time. We've seen the perversion and meticulous deconstruction of the family unit. You know, whether that be the Collingwood family that's now destroyed, or this haphazard family unit that is the gang. and. It's two representations of shattered American dreams. And yet only now, in this grand scheme of bitter, cruel, ironic fate, are we actually going to find ourselves in the titular House of Horrors. Only now are we about to enter the last house on the left. And in this reality, no dastardly deed can go unpunished. No one's escaping this with their innocence intact. There are going to be consequences for these actions. There's going to be harsh truths, betrayals, comeuppances. There's no happy endings. You know, this movie at this point almost takes a Wild West turn where one has to fight for what is theirs. That interconnectivity of man and violence, whether it be the Collingwood father or the gang. You know, you're going to have to do what you think is right, no matter how much of your own humanity you're going to lose along the way, for better or for worse. And I personally stand on the side of for better. I believe the film starts now. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. You know, the film has been leading up to this moment at this point where things are really going to start and we're going to see the degradation of humanity on all sides. No one comes out of this movie the same. Everyone has changed, for better or for worse, like you said. Yeah, I mean, true evil is about to lurk in the presence of these parents. You know, think of all the things they're going through through this day, and they still try their best to accommodate these people. Yeah, they're, you know, her Mary's parents are a bastion of hope in this cruel world. They definitely represent, like... I mean, they've gone through so much in that, di- in that entire day, and are just worried about Mary, but they're still trying to get through it. And it really speaks to the resilience of, you know, the human psyche, the human soul to get through challenges no matter what and just stick through it and try to figure it out. And pretty soon we'll see just how far they'll go for their own daughter. I will say, like, even as a teenager, this movie is always about the third act because Shock value be damned, like we said, you know, seeing all the crazy stuff we've seen up to this point. I don't know. I mean, when you went into this blind, did you know this was where it was going? Yeah, I was curious what was going to happen after the uh, murder of Phyllis and Mary, because, you know, it's kind of could go anywhere at that point. But as soon as, you know, we see the shot of uh, Mary's mom saying like, oh, honey, we've got guests. It's just like, oh, fuck. It just makes too much sense, but I don't even think, I mean, I wasn't thinking about that possibility, really. 
I had no idea what where it was really going to go. Yeah. You know, despite all they've gone through, we still have a problem with they don't have a car. They can't get out of town. They've really kind of put themselves in a corner here. Unfortunately for them, they're also in need of help. Yeah. And a cruel twist of fate put them in the last place they would really want to be. And they're so arrogant that they aren't even bothered when they figure it out. When they're staying in her room and see her pictures, they're just more amused that this could happen. In their mind, they've won. They think they've gotten away with it. They think there's no way anyone could find out. When really, they make it all too simple for her parents to kind of put the pieces together. Yeah, like, it all comes down to Krug just being a piece of shit. Like, you know you have your son hooked on junk, and you're gonna let him make an ass of himself. And not help him out when you know you're up Shit's Creek and you give the mom an opportunity to discover the necklace and start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. What else are they going to do? You know, once the mother discovers Mary's necklace, she knows something's terribly wrong. Then she discovers the bloody clothes and can overhear them conversing about killing a girl at a lake. Their revenge writes itself, right? Yeah, they're just... You know, the sheer hubris among this group who think they're just unbeatable and undefeatable. You know, there's no way they can lose in their mind. Even when they're in, you know, life or death situations, they just uh, have no regard for their own life. They have no regard for anyone else's life or their own either. You know, they're just kind of living, living to live. Yeah, so we get a quick dinner scene with the gang and the family where I like how they kind of like, are eyeballing these guests like you know they've got to be terribly distracted but something just doesn't sit right something's weird you know they're noticing little things like sadie's just downing this wine the gang has cuts and scrapes on them and you know their story is not really making a whole lot of sense you know what they're saying so mother collingwood does put it together and the parents go out into the woods and find mary's dead body I thought it was interesting because clearly she's moving a little bit in that scene, but I thought it was like almost a beautiful hope, you know, like maybe she's okay, but we know she's not okay. We even get the, the reprise of the song, you know, like the road didn't lead to nowhere. It led to your dead daughter and her killers are in your house. They're in your castle. The castle is not going to stay the same. I think it's a brilliant song, and I think we're being led brilliantly into this tale of revenge at this point. And oddly enough, we start off with Weasel's Nightmare. What did you think of this? I like this scene. I think it's, I think it's the movie. It's telling you that you're not going to get instant gratification with this film. You know, you may get your revenge, but it, you're going to have to wait to see it, and it's going to be an uphill battle for them to get it. You know, as as much as you're sitting there and you're probably thinking, like, can you just blow these guys' brains out when they're they're sleeping or just kill them already, you know? I think mom and dad are operating. They really want to hurt these people. They really want to torture them. And the lines are kind of getting blurred between, like, good and evil, you know? They're not thinking rationally, which I think is really cool of the movie. They're seeing red at this point, right? <laughs> Even the mom is, like revenge and honor bound to do right by her family whether that means castrating someone with her teeth 
unfortunately with Weasel's nightmare that awakens him. And they've gone as far as to bring Mary's body back to the house. Doc Collingwood is, you know, he's an older man at this point, and he's putting a plan together to protect his household, but Mom's going to have to run some interference here now that we've got Weasel wandering around. Yeah, the queen of the castle will do what she must to protect her king and get revenge. You know, they're both willing to do whatever. And yeah, they're not thinking rationally. They're seeing red, but they, they have a goal and they're determined. You know, much like our gang, they're, they will do whatever it takes. So we've got Weasel with his perverted arrogance being led outside, talking about being able to take Mom Collinwood with his hands tied behind his back. And I mean, is there any better comeuppance for a sexual predator? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just perfect. You know, once you mention sex, like, He's all in, like he's not thinking rationally anymore, you know, that's his downfall right there, you know, she's playing, playing to his weakness, and yeah, he gets his cock bitten off, and it's brutal. Yeah, and all the while, Pops has been setting up some booby traps, a nice Wes Craven trope, you know, he's got trip wires being set up, he's laying out methods of electrocution at the door. Shaving, slipping on shaving cream, yeah, Dad's over here doing some uh, Home Alone shit as I <laughs> like to call it. Yeah, look, he's doing everything he can to get himself an advantage because he's got a known commodity in his house. He knows he's got a young killer who could probably overpower him, so he's doing all he can. And then once Weasel gets his dick bitten off, his screams of agony alert the gang. And it's time to go. He's got the drop on Krug. And Krug is ready to go on the offensive just as well. Yeah, he's, uh, he's prepared. I mean, he knows his surroundings. He grabs that lamp and gives himself an advantage by blacking out the room. Unfortunately for Dad, he only nips a bit of his shoulder with the shotgun. But Krug is damaged. He is hurt. He, uh, he trips over the tripwire. He trips on the shaving cream, you know. He gets hurt. He gets a bit weakened. Gives you hope that Dad has enough of an advantage to overcome Krug. Yeah, we get a nice little one-on-one brawl here in the presence of Mary, who he just uses to add insult to injury with explaining, oh, well, she was tough. It took a lot to kill her, but you're just a pussy to the dad. And the dad is just doing everything he can to protect his household and get his revenge. And it almost looks like Krug is about to have the upper hand on him until Krug is confronted by Junior. What do you think of this scene? Anyone who's watching this movie feels a bit of empathy for Junior. Like, he's not in this situation of his own choice, you know? He's just the product of circumstance and his horrible father. And we've seen him kind of show a little bit of, you know, wanting to change, you know, when he's talking to Mary and she's trying to encourage him to help her and... You know, he he has his withdrawal dream earlier on that night, you know, dreaming about Mary. And I think that kind of shows his guilt over just being a witness to all the horrible things that he's he's been seeing. He's screaming, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And yeah, this is his point to kind of be a hero and maybe try to save the day. But Krug's superpower is belittling people and putting them down. And who can put you more down than your own parents? 
So he knows Junior's weakness and it, it gets to Junior and, you know, he ends up, you know, distracting Krug just enough for dad to get away. But yeah, Junior takes his own life and it's another sad, sad loss of innocence here with the death of Junior. Junior does get like, out of all the characters, he has like the slimmest of redemption arcs here. And it truly just shows how despicable Krug as a character is. That was always a scene that stuck out to me was the blow your brains out, blow your brains out. It doesn't even have to show you. It just the mental torment there and almost the rewarding satisfaction of killing himself that Junior does seem to get, you know? Yeah, he's relieved. I think like like Mary, he realizes this is his only escape. Even if he does kill Krug, like, can he even help himself? Does he know how? Does he know anyone that would be able to help him? So I think he sees that as his, his one-way ticket to freedom, unfortunately. Fortunately for us, though, Junior did distract Krug just long enough to allow for one of the most rewarding chainsaw emasculations in horror movie history, I'd say, because I just love how stripped to fear Krug is at this point. Yeah, the tables have been turned, and yeah, Krug is kind of like a helpless animal running around, you know, trapped in this situation. And he's like, get, get it over with, like, please just kill me. And I think Dad is just savoring every moment he has of the guy that murdered his daughter. We even get the final breakdown of Krug's family unit, where Sadie sees the writing on the wall and is like, no, nah, I have no honor with you either. So I'm going to try to get the hell out of here myself. It just leaves Krug defenseless to his own torture, which is so deserving. One of the most, the, the most cathartic scene in the, in the film by far is Krug finally getting his comeuppance and him living in the fear that he's made other people live through, you know, his entire life probably. Yeah, I I don't think there's a better line than when he's like, just get it over with, you know, just kill me. But no, we're not doing things on your terms here, Krug, you know. For once he's out of, he's not in control and it makes him uncomfortable and he's a helpless animal. I just love how everything comes together here too with the mom fighting Sadie on the lawn, struggling for the switchblade. Krug just having his manhood shattered. And then, of course, our bumbling cops show up just a minute too late. <laughs> our useless cops show up not in the nick of time. They've been <laughs> totally late every step of the way. And, you know, they can't even, they can't talk to Dad anymore. He's in his own world. He's going to do it. He knows he's going to do it. Sadie gets her, sl her throat slit and Krug gets his head cut off. I assume, that's what I assume, is he got his head chopped off. He got something done to him. <laughs> <laughs> and let me ask here, because, you know, we've, ex we've just went through this whole movie, a very dark film. Can you blame these parents? I can't blame them, no. I mean, I think I would do the same, given being put in that situation. I think most people would. You know, you have to ask yourself, at what cost was all this? Because they're not the same anymore after this. They just lost their daughter. They just murdered two people. They put one foot into the world of what Krug, Weasel, Sadie have been in. And you can't come out of that the same. You, you are changed from that point. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting thing to think about. 
I love the shot of just that it ends on mom and dad. You know, that's how the that's how the film closes is them kind of sitting down and embracing and it's it's over, but it's not a happy ending. Even with all the revenge and the gore, it's just quiet and it fades. And we get our folk song and little credit sequence. Yeah, our, our <laughs> unfitting credit sequence. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was Last House on the Left. Did you like this movie, Danny? Yeah, I thought it was great. I totally understand why this film is considered a classic among horror films. I can see why it would be considered a classic, not only among horror films, but among just film in general. Like I said, with the way that it plays with your expectations and it doesn't glorify murder or killing, it presents it to you and it kind of asks you, like, why, why would anyone enjoy this? You know, ask the viewer, like, why are you enjoying this? Because it's not an enjoyable film. It's a great film, but it's not necessarily an enjoyable watch. I'll say I had, I kind of put myself in the perfect situation to watch these movies. Uh, I shut out all the lights. I wait until night to do my viewings, at least my first viewing. And Pitch Black, Last House on the Left is the only thing on. Phone is off. And by the end, like, I was a bit shaky after finishing this film. It really makes you uncomfortable, especially everything in the house, because I think the moment that Krug and his gang are in the house, like, you're just uncomfortable, you know? At least on your first viewing, you're just like, oh, like, fuck, like, this cannot end well, and I don't know where it's going, and I, oh, like, I don't know, I was just... I was just like scary and jittery and like freaked out a bit and thrust into this, you know, very realistic situation. And yeah, it kind of affected me. It makes you uncomfortable. Like I said, it kind of lingers in your mind. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it and I am enjoying talking about it and deep diving into it. And me and you, our taste is very similar. <laughs> so if you love something, I'm going to probably like it. Yeah, I could say without a doubt that this viewing of this film for the podcast has definitely confirmed it as being one of my all-time favorite films. Not just horror, but there's just something about it. It It's an unpleasant, artful experience. I hesitate to use the term beautiful, but I think it's, you know, I think it would be warranted to talk about it on this film. It's, it's, it's a piece of art, for sure. So it's hard to glorify this, but did you find yourself a favorite kill? <laughs> you know, I think I have to lump favorite kill and favorite scene into one because uh i gotta go with mary just because i think that whole sequence you know after her rape and her accepting her fate and getting into the into the lake and just like you know just basically saying like just do it you know there's nothing else you can do to me i've accepted it and just the shot of her floating in the water is like probably my favorite shot of the whole film the music playing over it is perfect and then when when Krug fires the first shot, the music just cuts. I think that's uh, it's just mwah, you know, voila, like great, great, great scene. Yeah, I think for me, there's nothing more rewarding than when Krug finds himself on the working end of a chainsaw, like being tortured in his final moments with the knowledge of knowing that his pitiful life is soon coming to an end. You know, I just I can't toot the horn of this third act enough. You know, there's just something so rewarding and so brilliant in the chainsaw stalking of Krug. Yeah, that whole fight with between Dad and Krug is like so frustrating because you just want it to be over, but the movie doesn't let you have that gratification. It's like, you no, know, you're gonna sit with this and you're gonna put yourself in Dad's shoes and really think like, 
you know, how would I feel right now? You know, and how does this change a man? But it is very cathartic to see Krug finally get his comeuppance, for sure. And my favorite scene kind of attaches together, too, because it's like, I want to put myself in a time and place with my favorite scene here, where that first time I watched this movie, didn't get to see much of it. It was already 12 years old. And by the time I would see this whole movie, it'd already be 20 years old. And we're talking about it right now, and it's about to make 50. This movie's about to be 50 years old, and we're doing a Last House on the Left podcast. And I just don't think you can stress enough how sometimes it can be difficult to put yourself in a certain time and a place to truly appreciate a piece of art when it first makes those waves. You know, no matter how hard you try, regardless of how far removed you may be from that time yourself, you can't help but have your own reality shaped by your own time on this earth. The experiences that have created our knowledge of reality. But there's something about the final sequence in this movie that I can just place myself there, no matter if it was 12 years ago, 20 years ago, or 50 years ago. You know, when Doc Collinwood is sitting there in the bloody embraces of his wife, exasperated, pushed to his physical limits, no mercy, no surrender, a lack of beauty left in the world, husband and wife alone again shattered. This movie just shatters the American dream. You know, they've avenged their daughter, but to what end? You know, they're still sitting there covered in the gore of the killers. And we don't even need a single word of dialogue. We just freeze frame. And I personally can place myself in that grindhouse theater as the house lights come up on that scene. And to me, it's just glorious. You're confronted by an affirmation of respect for life or a confirmation that maybe you're just too desensitized. The film's final scene holds up a mirror to the viewer and gives them one last moment of pause to remind themselves that thankfully, this indeed has been only a movie, and it's been a brilliant movie. My final thought is, it is a quintessential American horror film. Yeah, well said, I agree, 100%. Yeah, this, this movie makes you confront uncomfortable truths. And you're right, it does make you appreciate life after, as I think any murder story or home invasion story would. You know, it sits with you and is uncomfortable and it stays with you. And it has staying power. You know, the staying power isn't the blood and the violence, but it's kind of the truth lurking in the back of your head. Thank God, like, this hasn't happened to me. Well, I've really enjoyed watching this and getting a chance to discuss with you getting your fresh perspectives and getting to share some of my uh, old memories of stealing VHSs and seeing this when I was probably a little too young. Yeah, I could probably get this at the red box and just keep it and nothing, no, no one would be the wiser. <laughs> <laughs> but you, on the other hand, uh, you almost went to court for Last House on the Left, which, I mean, that solidifies your cred right there, I think. I certainly hope so. But yeah, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to us. We hope you enjoy the movie. Is there uh, any plugs we can give out real quick? Yeah, you can send an email to us at fraternity at gmail.com. Send questions, comments, anything you want. We'll read them and we'll answer them if on the podcast. So, Don't forget to like and share and keep listening. And always remember to keep a good head on your shoulders and one on your desk. John's great with the hints. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening.